0: Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Assalamu alaikum. You too. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. How are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you.
0: Today we'll be talking with guest Jew Eric Weiner, author of The Geography of Genius, and with guest Gentile Catherine Martin, who is a lexicographer and head of U.S. dictionaries for Oxford University Press. We'll also be doing some news of the Jews, but first, how was your week, Stephanie?
1: My weekend was great. I was down in Florida uh, celebrating my mom's 60th birthday. Mazeltov, um, yeah,
0: tov, Mrs. all of us here. Butnick, thank you. She you. got
1: a lot of people wrote on her Facebook wall. Um, yeah, no, it was really, really, really fun. Uh, we done, went down to Kennebunk, which is our our uh, our base down there. Um,
0: Butnick South, as you Butnick call South. Call it? Yeah, yeah, we
1: passed Mar-a-Lago, the Winter White House. Very terrifying.
0: <laughs> too, too soon. I felt
1: Donald Trump's presence.
0: Are your parents are, are they full Floridians now? Have they well? Become... They're
1: halvesies now.
0: They're halvesies, and they're like they, f- they're is... fifty three. They're, they're retired turned, early, my right? My mom
1: just turned sixty. She's a very young sixty. Have they party to Mar-a-Lago? No. The Trump, but there's a weird thing about Trump down there because he was he you know Jews like I'm really sorry. Weren't... there's a weird thing about Trump everywhere. <laughs> no, they're no. Just no down but this there. is this is interesting because the Palm Beach Country Club's obviously no Jews, right? And like kind of still to this day. But Trump from the beginning like always let in Jews. So there's like a weird affinity, I imagine down there where he you know he's like a businessman right he doesn't care who you are he just
0: as he told the the conference of jewish republican donors like i i've made more deals than you people or (laughs) you've made more deals than i mean as as he said basically we're the same we're just obsessed with money and deals
1: but he i mean you know in a place where people were not very welcoming to jews obviously in a ridiculous concept we're talking about like country clubs but he sort of isn't
2: what he just said sounds like the most terrifying movie trailer ever in, a, in place. a place where people weren't welcoming to Jews, one man <laughs>
1: would let them had the off.
2: courage to <laughs> let them pay fifty thousand dollars a month for golf in a chintzy course, but
1: only like on an afternoon on to on take on their big
2: noses and <laughs> snort cocaine off the rear
1: of
0: strippers coming November seventh
2: from the people who brought you Madagascar. <laughs>
0: first a little a little real news of the Jews uh Michael Bloomberg, one of three Jews ever to have been mayor of New York City, said that he would not run for president, uh, which is just as well because he has no constituency outside of New York and wouldn 't have gotten many votes and i don 't know at a campaign rally in Florida, Donald Trump asked supporters to raise their right hands in a salute that in the photography afterward looked uncomfortably. <laughs> sort of mid-30s and German then, and comfortably.
1: <laughs> and then he duck-walked out of there. That's
0: right. And at Sunday's town hall debate, Bernie Sanders gave his Jewiest answer yet in any debate, telling non-Jew Anderson Cooper, I'm very proud of being Jewish. And that's an essential part of who I am as a human being. Bernie, we will believe it when you come on Unorthodox. That's when you'll actually get koshered. And the invitation the invitation stands. But
1: just don't interrupt him.
0: <laughs> Excuse me. I'm I'm talking. There, nothing gets my facebook feed more in a in a frothy lather than if someone attacked you know the whole is the whole sexism in the democratic primary question i had the gall to write that interrupting someone in a debate is not a sign of sexism it's a sign that you're in a presidential yeah,
2: debate you say that to a woman
1: no there was, was
2: mansplaining he was man- he was men <laughs> man- spreading on the podium <laughs> he and was man-splaining actually he was up way too much to pace. mrs clinton who's an accomplished woman
1: no, I think there was Horrible. one piece, I think Horrible. also in the Washington Post, which like really doubled down on this, that said he needs to sort of like be aware of how it appears to like have his hand was out. And he was saying, my hand is out right now. You can't see it. But like it's way out. His, his, his physicality seems to be a little like it can appear disrespectful. I, I would and also like to
2: add that, that he should ask Mrs. Clinton for her favorite preferred pronoun before he talks to her because she may not identify as say, a she. What if he <laughs> identifies as a they? As a Z, you know. they,
0: Stephanie, I actually think that piece, that struck me as the stupidest piece of all time because it's like saying to Mrs. Clinton, there's nothing wrong with wearing your pantsuits, but you need to be aware of like, actually, no, if, if he's either being sexist or he's not, if he's not, then saying you need to be more aware of the idiot people who will say you're sexist when you're not is, is a very kind of meta critique. No, that it's,
1: I think he's fair. the one candidate besides Trump, obviously, who hasn't seemed to like refine himself. But isn't
0: that great? Isn't it yeah, great that he's the great. same, like, pushy, loud, outgoing, you know...
1: But I think we give him a lot brusque. of credit because he's, like, this, like, grandpa dude. No,
0: don't give him credit then. But Mark, one does imagine that Hillary Clinton can handle that. I think Hillary Clinton was surprised when many of her supporters took that debate to be some eruption of sexism by Bernie Sanders. I mean, this woman deals with misogynist leaders all the time. And literally
1: every minute of the day.
0: Literally that's what she does is deal with people who think less of this women. This is, like,
1: the most respectful thing anyone's <laughs> done to her on a debate stage. <laughs> wow. while.
0: Across the country, far, far from Anderson Cooper, uh, in Salt Lake City, there is an authentic New York-style bagel shop. According to an article in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency this week, Rob Abrams, a former like New York money guy, has opened Salt Lake City's first authentic New York-style bagel shop, and it's called The Bagel Project, and it's selling about 6,000 bagels and
2: bialis a week, which is to say that the love affair between Jews and Mormons continues mormons are i'm sorry mormons are completely the new jews they are superior the jews. in every us. way they're doing everything we used to do and they before don't drink got, so they have like so, they so much more time drink, and they're so much more energetic they have like a cool like american religion and now they're even doing bagels better you know a- hats off to
0: Mormons. hats Mormon off friends. To the we and love they're, you. they're
2: taller too yeah and they're attractive
3: and attra- you
0: know? they're so attractive uh The Mufti of Gaza was interviewed on Palestinian television this past week, and he went into a long disquisition about the proper way to hit your wife. First, he said, you should speak to her kindly and tell her to know her place. That's important. If she
2: fails, you ought to deny her sex.
1: (laughs) The horror.
2: (laughs) I'm sorry, but when you have six wives and you're wife number one of six, that's kind of tough on her, more than it is on him.
0: If she still won't listen, then you must hit her, but not in the face so as not to uglify her. And you must hit her in a way that makes her feel how much you love her. Which, by the way, I'm pretty sure is a Phil Spector lyric. (laughs) This is about the most... You're saying that Bernie Sanders needs to worry about how he comes across in public. He hit me and it felt like a kiss, right? The Mufti of Gaza really needs to... Needs an image makeover. Stephanie, does this resonate with you?
1: Um, Would you have liked it? I just think he should be more concerned about the optics.
0: Wondering if there was a Jewish tradition on the proper way to beat your wife, we thought we would call uh, somebody who knows the Jewish tradition very well, our old friend and former unorthodox guest, Rabbi Avi Shafran. He is the head of communications for Agudath of America, which is an organization of uh, very, very religious congregations and rabbis. They don't like the term ultra-orthodox, but, you know, for lack of something
2: better.
3: Uber. Uber Uber, religious. Super Uber religious.
0: religious. Uber with the umlaut. Rabbi? I'm here, yes. Good morning.
3: Good morning. How are you?
0: We're great. How are you?
3: Good, thank God. Very well.
0: So we were just talking about how the Mufti of Gaza, a position that I wasn't aware still existed until this week, went on Palestinian TV to talk about the, the proper Muslim way to, to beat your wife. We were a little curious, what does the Jewish tradition say um, about the proper way to, to beat your wife? Is there a proper—if you're a Jewish man, is there a proper way to smack her around?
3: Well, let, let me say that from the start that I regularly look forward to beating my wife— <laughs> Um, every time we play Boggle, but <laughs> so far I have never managed to. I, I do maintain my hopes, so. though. Um, the Talmud uh, talks about uh, wives and husbands, and um, among the, uh, the more famous and uh, the more practicable and, uh, and accepted snippets from the Talmud are um, things like, uh, a man must love his wife as much as himself and give her more honor than he gives to himself, um, it talks actually about um, about uh, the pain of one's wife, which presumably would result from uh, beating her. And it says a man should uh, always be careful to avoid paining his wife because her tears come readily. That might seem a little sexist to some of us, but I think uh, that women do have a closer connection to their emotions than, than we guys do. Um, and uh, we're supposed to take that into account in a marriage. Um, the, uh, the Talmud also says that Uh, at least in household matters, things that have to do with the the home, the running of the home, which is, of course, the most important part of life, that if your wife is short, you should bend down in order to listen to her. In other words, uh, you should uh, realize that uh, she knows better than you do. And uh, the most famous statement about uh, how to treat one's wife is that one should honor his wife and children more than uh, in accordance with what he can afford. It says that he should dress himself in accordance with what he can afford and he should.
0: Wait, 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 uh, this is all nice, but are you saying there's no guidance in Jewish tradition for the proper way to beat your wife?
3: uh, Not that that I know of. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said, all kidding aside, the spousal abuse is a terrible thing, and uh, at least from what I've read, uh, it crosses all cultures and faith communities, and I don't have any reason to think that the Jewish community is uh, free of all spousal abuse, and women are almost always on the receiving end of, of such violence. And, you know, that's a tragedy, and, and it's one that has to be fought on all fronts, and there's certainly ample um, ample material in the Jewish religious tradition to uh, fight that kind of an attitude. Avi
2: Shafran, you should be the next Mufti of
3: Gaza. Um, I, if I can do it from New York, I, I consider <laughs> I think you it, can. Why not? I, I'm not sure I want to make that move at this point in my professional I think we should life.
2: start campaigning if, for you. If you uh, become... Okay.
0: Shafran for Mufti, 2016. Uh, if you become Mufti of Gaza, you won't have to take the Staten Island Ferry to work every morning. That's exactly
3: right. That's true. And I have the beard already, so uh, making, I am to buy the turban and I'm all set I guess
2: Making Gaza great again.
0: <laughs> Shafran, thank you so, so much. Thank you so line. much.
3: I'm going to run on that one. <laughs>
0: There's apparently a massive boom in cooperation between Palestinians and settlers in the West Bank, two feuding camps that nonetheless occasionally find common ground, especially as it turns out if the ground is growing marijuana. It was reported this week in the Israeli media that there have been some massive drug busts in which they've discovered massive cannabis plants that seem to have been, what what was it, were they co-tended by Palestinian and, and Jewish farmers? They were, they were co-sold,
2: co-produced.
1: <laughs> and co-smoked.
2: And co-smoked.
1: It is kind of like exactly what everyone needs. That's exactly what they need. Just like take it down a few notches. Just
2: What we need to do, instead yeah. of John Kerry, we need to send fish to the right. Middle East for a 73-hour-long concert. No, or we need some three-party talks with the Jamaicans.
0: We, yeah. need, <laughs> we, need, we need Ziggy oh, Marley. Finally, a
1: mediator we can all get Yeah, behind. we
0: need some three-party talks. Um,
1: it's the land of milk and honey and, you know, and ganja.
0: And ganja,
2: yeah, yeah. Oh. But can you imagine the thing is like...
1: I will kill all in. Oh, forget about it. Come here, brother. Hugs? (laughs) It's like the next Adam Sandler movie. Hugs?
2: It It, is the next Adam Sandler
1: movie. Rob Schneider
2: (laughs) is Mahmoud Abbas. (laughs) Adam Sandler is Benjamin Netanyahu. And
1: they're all hot. And the movie's going
2: to be called. Wait for it. Wait for it. The Green Line.
0: Oh! All right, we're done. We're done. We just peaked. That was peak, peak unorthodox. I'm out. Well, since that was fun. Israeli performance artist Ariel Bronze (laughs) is being investigated for a stunt on stage at an arts festival in Tel Aviv. He shoved what appeared to be an Israeli flag up what the writer Tom Wolfe would call his fundamental aperture. One of those who filed a complaint against him was Culture Minister Miri Regev, who's flag is always in a bunch over uh, dare you sir over liberal that is artists a sexist a argument who is wanted optics, to who is, who is wanted to strip arts funding from people who do things like ball up Israeli flags absolutely and inaccurate. shove them up their fundamental aperture was it Un- on a true.
1: flag pole that's yes it was okay that's what I thought no it wasn't, wasn't a pole shov- yes it, it was it wasn't a how flag would you-
2: no no it was on a, p- on a little pole how else would you shove it up well, your that's ass
1: that's why I was confused about <laughs> it's really was difficult it wadded and put in? I'm
2: sorry but like for all our listeners listening at home, if you if you want to make like an experiment out of this, shoving fabric uh, uh, into your rectum it's kind of difficult to do. You need real commitment. That's Friends, why a little poll. Only on Unorthodox. Put a telephone in your butt. Say put some dust in your butt. I Say it's a must in your butt. I Say pizza crust in your butt.
0: If you don't get enough of us in your car, uh, you can see us in person. Liel will be at the JCC of Louisville on March 20th, talking about Leonard Cohen. Is that right? Talking about Leonard Cohen? Talking about Leonard Talk Cohen. about Leonard Cohen. You can find out more at jewishlouisville.org. The whole crew of Unorthodox will be at the Oshman Family Jewish Community Center in Palo Alto, California on April 7th. I will be at Williams College April 19th. And our rescheduled once snowed out event at American Hebrew Academy in North Carolina will be May 16th. So... And we will come wherever you want us if... If you guys can put together 100 subscriptions to our print magazine. Uh, we can tell you more about that if you email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. If you want to just subscribe right now... And you if
2: you sh- think about it, it's what, $40 for the magazine? Yep. Times 100, that's like $3,600. $3, <laughs> $3, that's auspicious well, $3,600. That's dollars It's, it's $4,000, is not it? No, but it's $36, right? It's 39 dollars Okay, so it's $4,000 it's to have the four of us, yeah, uh, the three of us plus Julie, come to your, you know, your living room. Your of... bar mitzvah, yeah. your living room. That your... is, that is, that is less than like a, a mid class prostitute. People, you could afford that, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and we're all and, class. and we are way more entertainment and gratification. Uh, than the best call girl in New York. Yep. We will talk. We will sing. Yep. We will not sing for a little bit extra money. We will do whatever you want. And we'll keep it, yeah, we'll keep it on the DL. And you get then you
0: get the magazine. So and we're actually, you get 100 like, magazines. We actually get the magazine. So we are a gift that keeps giving. Text subscribe to 66866 to get the magazine. The print magazine issue number two is almost out. It will be out for Pesach. Our guest drew this week is Eric Weiner. Don't call him Weiner. He's a former New York Times reporter and NPR correspondent, now a philosophical traveler and recovering malcontent. Those are his words. His books include the bestseller, The Geography of Bliss, about the happiest places on Earth. And his latest just out is called The Geography of Genius. It's about places throughout history that have birthed genius from Athens to Vienna to Silicon Valley.
4: Hey, Eric. Hi, Mark.
0: How are you, sir?
4: I'm very well. Yourself?
0: Good. Where where are you?
4: Uh, I'm in very, 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 very close to Washington, D.C. I can see it from my window. Are
1: there any geniuses there? <laughs>
4: uh, I have not spotted any yet, but I will let you know. Any so,
2: Eric, this is this is Liel. Pleasure to have you on the show. Great book. We're going to jump right uh, t- to the thick of it. So we uh, y- you have been the NPR correspondent in Jerusalem for a while. We have just uh, read a news item uh, that you may or may not have seen about an Israeli performance artist shocking the country by uh, shall we put it mildly, shoving an Israeli flag uh, up his bottom. Uh What yeah. is it? What is it about that place that makes geniuses, crazies, and and all sorts of uh, extreme, um, you know, forms of human life?
4: I think it's maybe two thousand plus years of collective insanity it might have something to do with it. Uh, Jerusalem, in particular, I remember I did a story for NPR years ago on something called Jerusalem Syndrome. Have you heard of that?
0: Oh, yeah. That's when people go there and decide that they're the Messiah and just never leave and just walk around wild-eyed. Right, yeah,
4: right. And uh, I think there's like a wider Jerusalem Syndrome at play, too, which is that it just it kind of brings out the most extreme behavior in people. Um, and I think the history is part of it. People sort of feel like um, there's been a lot of, craziness, for lack of a better word, taking place there over the last 2,000 years. So why not shove an Israeli flag up my bum? You know, um, it, it sort of, in a weird way, gives you permission to, to do things like that. Why not? Just right. Why you know, not Israel, I've really never fled. thought
2: about it like this, but Israel is really like, it's the burning man of history. It's like the one place that you could just go and just like let your and free it flag fly. And it never it ends. Never. You get whatever you want and it would still be interesting and cool. So we're going to get to
0: your current book, but let us backtrack to the Geography of Bliss for a moment, because we've we got to ask, uh, what is the happiest place on Earth?
4: Well, you know, this is where I could be really coy and say we have to read the book, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I, would say, I will say that two of my favorite places uh, that are pretty darn happy are Iceland and Bhutan.
0: This is amazing because um, our next guest actually married an Icelander. So this is going to be a nice segment. And there
4: are only like 300,000 of them in the world. So that's, you know, the odds of marrying an Icelander are pretty small. I, I'm a fan of Iceland because it's, it, it is so unexpected, you know. It's, it's teetering on the edge of the world. It's, it, it's cold. It's dark. Uh, it's kind of alcoholic. I mean, it, <laughs> and, you know. It sounds like my,
2: my childhood, it. sir.
4: Yeah, you wouldn't expect it to be happy or be creative, but it is actually both of those things. Um, so I'm a fan of Iceland, and I'm a, a fan of Bhutan and their uh, experiment with gross national happiness. Those are probably two of my favorite places in the world.
0: What about, a? let's say I don't have a passport, and I just want to get really happy in the contiguous 48 states. Do you have any advice on that? New Jersey.
4: Uh, contiguous, huh? How about if we expand that to the 50 states? Hawaii. Yeah, I would say Utah and Hawaii, for different reasons, often come out on the top of the, the happiness surveys in the U.S.
0: And they both uh, have a lot of Mormons. Hawaii has, after Utah and Idaho and Arizona, probably the largest percent. Is is it Mormonism?
4: I think it's otherness in a way, right? I mean, those two states are really kind of outliers in the U.S., uh, one geographically and one religiously. And you know, and I, I think that helps.
1: But by the otherness barometer, we should be much happier than we are here in this room.
4: Uh, that is.
0: You mean as Jews? Yeah, Stephen. Uh, yeah, I hope you're
4: including <laughs> me in that metaphor. We are in the metaphorical, room, in the metaphorical um, room. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're 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 right about that. I, I think there's a, there's a sweet spot of otherness, um, and this applies to happiness and it applies to creativity as well. You want to be like an insider outsider. You want to be outside enough to be different, but inside enough to you know not be killed and to be accepted. <laughs> Which, by the it's way, a also, fine line. also <laughs>
2: applies to genius, right?
4: Yes, exactly. That was my subtle segue to genius, <laughs> um, is that you really... I think a lot of geniuses are insider-outsiders. Freud's a classic example. Um, you know, he was an outsider as an immigrant to Vienna and as a Jew, uh, but he was inside enough that people you know after dismissing his ideas you know a hundred times on the 101st time said well hmm, maybe there's something to this um so all geniuses are outsiders but inside enough that you know they're not dismissed as just nut jobs
0: so in the geography of genius you you talk about a number of places Athens ancient Athens Renaissance Florence um Enlightenment Edinburgh Silicon Valley and you seem to have a different a different theory for each of them there doesn't seem to be a master theory. Um, in the Athens chapter, um, at one point, this was amazing to me, you talked about how they sort of had a proto-motivational literature, that a lot of their literature exalted genius and and um, and called people to it. I was really surprised by that because I tend to think that motivational literature, motivational speaking, the idea of just exalting people, which is every corporate convention today, is probably total bunk. So was I misreading the claim that you were making there?
4: Well, there's, there's a There's one theory that basically, um, you know, greatness follows literature, and literature doesn't follow greatness. You know, in other words, that if you have, you know, I don't know if it's motivational literature, but if you have uplifting aspirational literature, then you will have an aspirational people. It's a theory. Um, And you're right. There is no – I struggled to come up with a unifying theory of places of genius because, look, the fact is if, you know – if there was a recipe, uh, a formula for creating, you know, one of these places of genius, um, you know, I would not be sitting on the phone with you right now. I would, I would be on my yacht in the Mediterranean, you know, I would be wildly wealthy. So speaking of genius, um, you
1: have two cats. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> way, can you weigh in? I mean, I have a cat. I think he's the smartest thing in the whole wide world, like in an evil way. But like, can you weigh in on the whole cat and dog thing?
4: Which ones are geniuses? Yeah, like cats um, are outsiders, well, also I mean, insiders. Which ones get us to do more stuff for them? You know, maybe it's the cats. Um, I guess, yeah, that, that's the that's the stereotype, and there might be some truth to it that cats are smart and dogs are are loving. Yeah, I, I have to confess, I never gave it a lot of thought. That's your next um, book.
2: That could be your next book. I, yeah. think, I think we need a real, uh, you know, reevaluation of the whole animal intelligence thing because usually when they publish those ridiculous annual, you know, dog intelligence, like breed intelligence. Metric like the metric of intelligence is how well they listen to us, which strikes me as exactly the opposite. <laughs> the intelligent ones know that we're idiots. That we have to listen to yeah, them. Yeah, like, no. Eric,
0: I found your chapter on Silicon Valley to be wonderfully passive-aggressive, bordering on hostile. Uh, it seems as if you went out there trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's, what's where's, wrong? Where's the there there? And then you basically said, first of all, it's just a big suburban sprawl. Nobody seems to be much of a genius. And it also seems like... um they just get lucky because at this point, there's so much venture capital to catch them if they fall that they're allowed to take risks. And there's that much venture capital there because once upon a time, Hewlett and Packard had a garage there and it just kind of became the place where the venture capital would support people in taking risks. So it, it, am I right that you basically think they're not necessarily any more genius out there? They just have more social supports? Was I reading that correctly?
4: Well, I, I think there there is. First of all, Silicon Valley has nothing to do with technology. I mean, at least the genius of Silicon Valley has... Very little to do with technology um, that 's just the product is technology, but what has made it Silicon Valley is uh, you know a, a an ecosystem of creativity that is uh, you know based on the idea that we will separate the good ideas from the bad ideas. We the venture capitalists will choose what deserves to be backed, and once we choose something we'll slot it into a a system of networks where you will connect with so and so and so and so and if you fail, you know, you will wrap yourself in the mantle of glorious mantle of failure. But I guess the truth is that you're not really taking a huge risk uh in in a place where failure is celebrated. Um are you really taking a risk? I guess is the question that I ask because you can always walk into another venture. Um so they do certain things right in Silicon Valley and there's a reason why it is Silicon Valley. I'm just not sure if their genius is the level of Darwin and Einstein.
2: So, see, this is this is interesting that you should say it, because reading your book, I couldn't help but feeling that. You know, since you constructed it, uh, you know, in, in parts like sort kind of a historical argument that there was a historical genius deficit. In other words, you know, if someone from uh, gen- place of genius Athens met someone from place of genius Cupertino, California, the conversation would go something like, "You know, what did you invent? You know, representational democracy. What about you? You know, an app that delivers beer after midnight. D- do you see this? Is is there is there <laughs> from kind of your decline? phone from right. your phone, dude? Is is there a genius in decline? Is there kind of a deficit?" Um, I, I think we are approaching uh, peak genius in a way.
4: Um, and there is there is a case of genius creep going on as opposed to creepy geniuses, which is a whole other subject. <laughs> which
2: also go on, yeah. Um,
4: and just think of how we use the term. I mean, we toss it around promiscuously. I mean, you do a quick Google search, you'll find football geniuses, marketing geniuses, you know, political geniuses. Podcasting
0: I mean, I mean, geniuses. Rap genius.
4: Yeah, rap yeah, exactly. genius. Exactly. You throw around the term And the truth is, and there's some empirical evidence of this, that that we are producing actually more talented people but fewer actual geniuses these days, that there are fewer breakthroughs of Einsteinian proportion in the sciences today than there were in centuries past. And I think think that is true. Um, And I think partly specialization is to blame. Um, Partly is, you know, if you need to sort of master the canon of what came before, before you can add to it, Well, good luck, you know, in any field. You know, it's so huge. You can spend, you know, you can be 95 before you get a third of the way through the canon. So um, for a number of reasons, I think we we see a dilution, I guess, of, of
3: genius.
0: I would think that in researching this book, some part of you had to be thinking all the time, like, do I have latent genius that would have been accessed if I'd grown up in this time or town or place? It could have, it could have been me, right? Were you kind of yeah, thinking that? Yeah,
4: pretty depressing. It was depressing that way. Um, you're right. And it's too late, and I say that up front, you know. Because, um, you know, geniuses peak, they peak at different ages for different fields. Did you know that? that I, uh, I did,
0: as a former chess player of distinctly non-genius gifts. I know that us, well. Give us, give us those for some, for some ranges. I
4: mathematician's peak in their 20s. Uh, historians and philosophers and writers a bit later. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really do believe that we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve, so that you you do need to have the luck of the draw of being born in the right place at the right time for your particular disposition. Um, just like if you're a really extroverted person and you find yourself born in Japan, you're probably not going to be too happy. You're not going to fit in very well in a country of introverts, and you, you sort of need to have the, the skills that are honored. You know, um, the, the epigraph at the beginning of my book sort of says it all. In fact, you don't have to read the book. Just read the epigraph. It's one line. But buy the book. Uh, yeah, it's from, right exactly. Buy the book, read the epigraph, put it on your shelf. That's it. Okay. It's, it's from Plato. What's honored in a country is cultivated there. It's so simple. It's, it says it all. And so in 18th century Vienna, they honored music, classical music, as we call it today. And they got Mozart and Beethoven. And we honor apps that tell us, you know, when our laundry's ready, you know. And, <laughs> and, and you have so we have the best apps in Jobs. the world. Yeah, we get Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so it really is, you know, I do believe that genius is a social verdict. And sometimes the jury is just a bunch of idiots.
0: Eric, you know what else we honor? We honor nonfiction books by former radio reporters. And <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it is a great book. Everyone should go buy. They, they should at least buy and probably read The Geography of Genius. And I also want to assure you that we're pronouncing your last name, Weiner, not Wiener.
4: Be, be smart and creative now. Okay. <laughs> you too. Fine. Right.
0: That's, his, that's his Vulcan send-off now, yeah. Be Smart and Creative. Why start now?
3: <laughs> Albert Einstein was a ladies' man. So he was making out like He was a genius.
0: Friends, we are sponsored this week by Warby Parker, the eyeglass company. Have you ever noticed how ridiculously expensive eyeglasses are? I am someone who's needed eyeglasses for half of my life. I got them when I was 22. I'm almost 42. And I was shocked. I mean, they are pieces of plastic, maybe titanium. You walk into an optician's office and you're looking at $300, $400, even $500. The people at Warby Parker said, enough. They said, good Selling online, they offer glasses starting at $95, lenses included. They are vintage inspired, but they're kind of contemporary. Every pair is custom fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses. For those of you with strong prescriptions, Warby Parker offers ultra-thin, high-index lenses, so you will never look like that kid in the sandlot with the Coke bottle glasses. Unless, for reasons of retro styling, you want to, and then you can. Glasses just shouldn't cost as much as an iPhone. And I want to say, by the way, I have Warby Parker glasses. They are my uh, my shades, the things I wear in the summer, my cool, Ray-Ban-ish looking things, and they are Warby Parker, and I've had them for about three or four years. Warby Parker makes buying online easy and risk-free. The Home Try program allows customers to order five pairs shipped directly to them where you guys can, can show them to your spouses, your partners, your kids, your dog, your friends, and say, how do I look? And then you can return any ones you don't want with the free prepaid return shipping label. One final thing. You probably know if you're socially conscious that about a billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. Fifteen percent of the global population can't effectively learn or work as well as they could. Warby Parker has partnered with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. So it's a great company. You'll have cheaper glasses. You'll be able to try them on longer. Try doing that at your optician, taking five pairs home and trying them. And you'll be giving back. Visit warbyparker.com slash unorthodox to begin your free home trial experience today. Our guest Gentile this week is Catherine Martin. She's head of United States Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. Specifically, she's a lexicographer, a dictionary editor- and, General, are you a word maven? I shouldn't assume that you are, right? Like, this could be your your career, but in your private time, you might just, like, watch abbreviate. pro football. Yeah.
5: yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people assume that all lexicographers are word mavens, too. You have nice Yiddishism there. Um, and, uh, and a lot of people who really like words are interested in becoming lexicographers. But, in fact, I think a... a passion for words can sometimes work against the cold scientific approach that we need to take. Um, I'm a historian more by training. Um, and we do tend to have a lot of generalists, more, fewer linguists you, than you'd expect. How do you
2: become that? I mean, wh- what goes on through, you know, 12-year-old you, you know, your brain when you're like, you know what? What seems like an amazing thing to do when I grow up? I, I want to be a lexicographer.
5: I wish that were the story that I had. The real answer is I just saw an ad for lexicographer. I didn't even know what the word meant. So I looked it up in my dictionary (laughs) and I thought, wow, that sounds like a great way to research things all day, but not have to commit.
2: (laughs) Uh, It seems to me that there's something weird about dictionaries. I think in this moment in culture, they're, they're becoming both you know eminently more and somewhat less important on the one hand you don't have the big you know books that as kids some of us this stephanie oh, my was my mom always in, used to make the me 70s. look up words in you the know, dictionary look up the word in the dictionary but but then again it seems to me that the the because of internet and other digital media the, the sensitivity to words has become so much greater and the need for this constant work has also become greater do you see this do you see this ebb and flow or am i totally uh, at no
5: one? you're 100% correct that like what we all thought that the dictionary was was largely based on the of arbitrary uh, limitations imposed by a book. So it's in alphabetical order, because how else will you find something? But that's not actually a way that it makes sense for information to be organized. So uh, dictionaries are all online right now. And people tend to be much less um, dedicated to a particular text. So whereas we once might have had Someone who is an Oxford person, and they would always open our dictionary. Now they're probably just going to the internet and typing things in. So it, you know, you. This reminds
2: me of the great Stephen Wright joke. And I just finished reading the dictionary. Turns out the zebra did it. <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's there's a uh, we we're in a in a new world right now, and no one really knows what. Um, the future of dictionaries will be on the other hand it's a really exciting time because we now have access because like so many of the interactions that used to take place orally are now taking place through written mediums we can see oh, new we, slang we know popping what people up. are actually saying yeah, yeah. Like, like like two teenagers talking used to be like, no one heard it. It's like as, as if it didn't happen. Now that there, it leaves a record if they're doing it on Twitter or something and we can actually identify, oh, that's where that word came from. So and you it, do, and you it's do on that? Fleek. Yes. Fleek is a great example. Like, Stephanie you to- had to
2: explain fleek to me. You, you in, in your efforts to research the origins of the word, you would go back to Twitter, to Facebook, to social media platforms, and you would look for the exact
5: origin of some form of expression. G- give us an example. I can give you a great example. So selfie is a word that you've probably heard of. Even I've heard that yes. word. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, that's an amazing word that went from zero to 60 overnight. Went from like,
0: zero to Obama yeah. practically
1: overnight. Right. Well, I mean,
5: it went from a thing that no one had heard of to, like, your grandmother is using it in a really short period of time, which is something we love to see. But then when we see a word like that and we make an entry for it, we try to find its prehistory as well. Um, and in this case, an independent researcher who just loves to search for the origins of words. That's
0: called free labor for <laughs> yes. you guys. You just have these obsessives who send you stuff. Yes. yes.
5: So this this independent researcher found this uh, an example from 2003 of this Australian guy who I'd like gone out had a big night fell down and like cut his face and then the next morning I think this was 2003 he uh wrote a, had a blog post where he took a picture from the like webcam on his computer and said uh, sorry, it's out of focus, it's a selfie, or words to this effect. Um, and when Oxford Dictionaries made selfie the word of the year a few years ago, we mentioned this anecdote, and like people came to this guy's house. And, <laughs> and he said, well, I didn't invent the word. I mean, everyone was saying it, which is usually the case. It's just he was the first person who left a record. Now, that was 2003, today, perhaps the first person who said it would have left a record because teenagers don't talk to each other anymore. They always leave a record.
0: I actually invented- God bless you young people. Right. (laughs) I actually invented the Mentum at the end of like Joe Mentum. I invented (laughs) that for Joe Lieberman. And I know you've written recently about Trump Mentum. Did you credit me?
5: Oh my God, I did not. uh, That is, is is that actually true? Because I, so yes, I was- Uh, uh, Yes. Yeah, I I was, I looked it up and I, well, I found um, it definitely emerged for Joe Lieberman. Yep. Um, I was
0: writing for the Hartford Current when Joe Lieberman was selected As the vice presidential candidate, this was 2000, right? When Gore chose Lieberman, you can go find it. And I believe I coined Joe Mentum. Well,
5: I will. I did not for that blog post. I did not do the full OED treatment. So I found. I wanted to know who the first candidate was to whom Mentum was applied, but I didn't go all the way back to see the history of Joe Mentum. So when we actually do the dictionary entry for Mentum, if such a thing were to occur, I I will. All right. I'm, I'm writing that down for the files. So tell us about Trump Mentum. Yeah. Well. So. Mentum? Which seems
0: to be very awkward. It's not yeah, a great... it's, it. Ain't, it ain't no mit mentum. Right. It don't trip off the tongue the way that Biden mentum well, does.
5: Well, well he, they, they stole yours. So Joe, he did. had Joe mentum. It's okay. Marco mentum is better. So <laughs> what, when when you have a blend, it works best if some of the words, are, some of the sounds are... In common. So Joe Mentum is fantastic because it rhymes with momentum. Mit mentum, you at least have the first letter being mm-hmm. the same. So mit mentum. <laughs> Marco mentum, you can kind of see. But Trump mentum only works if mentum has already become like a separable affix, which right. um, the linguist Arnold Zwicky calls a libfix, a liberated affix. And so that's like the Kini in in bikini. Or
0: gate. Or the Watergate, gate fantastic
5: right. example. Um, and... Leibowitz
0: Gate is when we discovered that Leal was appropriating money from the Tablet funds. And oh yeah, it was Leibowitz Gate. Because that's where you go to appropriate a lot of money
2: to a, a non profit, Jewish, <laughs> Jewish publication. Right. Let so, me ask you this. So, so in your line of work, you see how we use language, uh, and and often, uh, by, by we, I don't mean us. You mean the Jews? Room. We're slightly better, <laughs> but I mean America is you know becoming p- profoundly you know more and more base nation. Do you go crazy by watching
5: some of the utter violence done to the English language every day? See, this is a common misconception about lexicographers um, because we tend not to be grammar pedants. We are actually the mo- some of the most lenient people about usage that there are because we're a mirror. You're just holding... interested in
2: usage and how it's we're t- We're used. telling
5: you what you're saying. So our job is to look at all the evidence that we have and hold a mirror up to you and say, America, you're starting to say hone in on instead of home in on. Just FYI, I hate that. See, I am really
0: <laughs> pedantic about that, but but that's a that's controversial. I mean, there was a time right when people thought dictionaries should be prescriptive, not descriptiv,e yes. right? What is so? You are saying the the descriptivists have won? You the know, time lo- was
2: my childhood once again. Yeah.
5: <laughs> well, I think that that's a false binary distinction because part of the description of a word is people. If you say this, people will think you are stupid. Right, so okay. if that's true of something, and we actually have a pretty extensive usage note about "home in on" versus "hone in on," and what we discovered is that it's much more accepted in the United States than it is in the UK. So perhaps you are a closet Anglophile. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a that's a case. Add that to the list of closet <laughs> things. That oh, you may be. right, there's many things I like closet, Catherine, but my Anglophilia, is, I fly that free flag. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I think there are people there was a thing in the New Yorker a few a few years ago where they were really like trumping up this debate about the prescriptivists versus the descriptivists, And most people have a foot in both camps because you can't accurately describe something without saying how it's received as well as how it's used.
2: So you you, you really insist on being sort of like radically non-judgy. Like, come on. At no point are you like, I'm the fucking OED boss. <laughs> you do not say that. You don't like it's social events. not n- Never. <laughs>
5: I I think I've, I've i I've really in fact it, since I've become a, a lexicographer I've actually become worse at spelling and I think <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason for this is that I'm exposed to unedited yeah. like <laughs> unfiltered American and British people talking all the <laughs> time. What's like
1: the, fa- the the like the funniest word you've come across or like the young like the young text lingo? Like, is there something that just like makes you happy when you see it? I don't
5: know. I will. There there are. I'm going to admit now. There are. I don't like all words, and um, so uh, "awesome sauce" was one that <laughs> yeah, I
1: objectively <laughs> terrible.
5: Yeah, when we had to add, we added that to the dictionary, there was a sense of like, "Oh,
1: We've really? They, it, they've something, won." Something We've died <laughs> inside a little <laughs> yeah. bit because that, that doesn't even make sense as a word. Aha! Uh-huh.
0: Well, it's the sauce suffix, right? Yes. Hold on, lexicographer, yes. uh, tell, tell us well, about I think, awesome I, sauce. I
5: think Mark knows the answer here. No, no, no. I'll, uh, that's I've just well, closet, said all I know. Oh, which is that it's. Oh, was weak sauce was the original phrase, so weak oh, sauce is something that. bad, and you can see how weak sauce, like if you like hot sauce or something, presumably that's the metaphor. If weak sauce would not be good, and so the opposite of weak sauce, rather than being strong sauce, for some reason was awesome sauce. Perhaps because the actual, like the literal meaning of the original metaphor was lost.
1: It, so doesn't, you have, it do doesn't. You have to accept weak sauce as a word to then like build on it. With awesome sauce? Well, we started with awesome sauce, that and was then deep, when we, that was deep stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, you see, you you
5: clearly have the makings of a of a lexicographer because we started with awesome sauce was the word that had yes. had the frequency, and then when we looked into it, realized had the same question as you: why would this even be a thing? And the research led us would to discover you ever, that that's why. Would
2: you ever use your powers to say a word like this is not in my <laughs> fucking dictionary? No way. Could you do that?
5: We if you can't. Want and and this is actually to go serious for a moment. People often will approach us about slurs and like really honestly damaging, awful words that show a, a ugliness in human beings. And I wish that I could take those out of the dictionary. But we they are words and we're we have to tell you what they mean and what their history is. The fact that it's in the dictionary doesn't mean that the dictionary endorses its use. <laughs> it's
1: like re-tweets, do you have a science, yeah, retweets are not endorsements,
5: <laughs> are not yes. endorsements yeah, very in much. the OED. Like, inclusion is not an endorsement. Uh, I have one more question
0: for you, and then I, you're, you have a question for us. So, yes. Okay. Um, my question for you is, do you feel when you hear "Jewish" that it's a slur?
5: Well, you know, I, yeah, I think... I mean, I, well, this, this is a loaded
0: question because I have a very... I actually, I won't tell you how I feel about Jewess, but I want to hear what your take.
5: Most of my encounters with the word Jewess have been in 19th century British literature that right. is of an anti-Semitic nature. <laughs> so my... Like
2: people in Daniel Duranda complaining, why are you with that Jewess? Yes. Yeah. Uh,
5: so, and I also think that S words in general show... Poetess. Sex... So there's, there's a sexist angle yes. there. Priestess. So, um, but I, but I, but I would also acknowledge that the word, like "Jew" as noun, is also very fraught in interesting ways in contemporary usage. So I'd. Oh my
0: god, we're gonna bring you back to talk about that because I'm obsessed with the the fact that Chris that to be a Christian is a good thing, but to be a Jew is a bad thing. This is like this is this is the next dissertation, all right? But you, um, when we told you that you were had a panel of Jewish experts with deep, deep, highly certified Jewish knowledge, and we said, do you have any questions for us? You actually sent in a couple great questions. What was your question about headgear?
5: Oh yes, so um, kippa, yarmulke, uh, skull cap, which I've also seen. What are the uh, these all refer to the same item? But which is preferred? What are the distinctions in usage, and what do
1: they mean? So I'll answer for tablet because ta- so the, these are all referring to the the, the tiny little circle that the Jewish men wear on their heads. Are um, jew
0: beanie. With a propeller. Tablet
1: style is yarmulka, which is spelled yarmulka, which is fun every time you have to write it. So we don't we don't refer to kippahs or kippot. But I think in speech you you would say a kippah.
0: Like, like well, so yarmulka is Yiddish, and therefore has a longer history in America because Hebrew wasn't a language. Yes. We weren't borrowing words from Hebrew until the past thirty or forty years. So your grandma and grandpa always said yarmulka. And was a, is a is, a, is a, a move of Zionist aggression, basically. It's like, now that Hebrew's the language, we're supposed to say Kippa, but nobody's Bubby now, and Zadie now said- Now, the Hebrew's the language. Yeah, now, Never used to be before. Well, nobody said Kippa, But all of a sudden, people no, just- No, but nobody they, used to say Kippa. No, no Bubby and Zadie, I mean, in Except your family- Except you know, throughout most of Jewish history yeah, up until the in moment. America, okay. in, America, in, America, in America, no one In America, no, where, what, said, no which said is where In America, which is where we are in America. It's the center of the universe. Right. Which we're making great again. Let's be real. So, I personally- when I hear kippa, I think that's what your Hebrew school teacher called it. When I hear, but yarmulke is what Bubby and Zadie call it. So it's say, a more Hamish word to me.
5: That's so interesting because that absolutely gels with my Gentile experience of the words of the word, which is that growing up, I only heard yarmulke from and then when I went to college, yeah, the in people were calling
1: it k- a kippa. Yeah, and I wondered what happened. I have to say, my family calls it a Yamaha.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As do many four-year-olds. Many four-year-olds have called it yeah. a Yamaha. Uncle Joel. I think it, I think calls it also it a has
2: to do with. Uh, maybe I'm totally off here, but I think it also has to do with like your level of observance and your your kind of affiliation. It's like you know a reformed person goes to Temple, whereas someone who's not reformed yeah. goes to Shul.
0: But that's weird it's too, because you... a
2: modern Orthodox person, because they're religious Zionists, will
0: often say Kippa, whereas Haredi ultra Orthodox they're Yiddish y- oriented, so they'll say yamaka
2: Or they won't, because the Yarmulke is always on their head. So why
0: would they
5: be <laughs> talking just about?
1: Why so not even to reference yeah. it, but skull cap, i have to say skull cap is like. To come a, back. But like, it's. I feel like that's a word in in literature. Like, you also see like the Jewish man and his skull cap, right? like, don That's what's so interesting because the, the Pope beanie is also referred to as a skull cap. Skull cap. Sure if I ever
5: start
2: a skateboarding company, I'm going
0: to call it Skullcap. <laughs> skullcap. It's a cool name. But it is true. Like in the New York Times, in the 1930s, they would refer to a skull cap wearing poet. You know, if an Orthodox guy yes. was running for office, <laughs> he was wearing a skull cap.
1: Seems a little neg. Um.
0: Catherine Martin, thank you so much for joining us. For you've been one of our top ever Gentiles of the week. I'm not going to say Shiksa of the week, but I'm going okay, we'll to say
5: thank you because someone told time. me what that actually means literally, and I I felt very yep. offended. It's a, ver- it,
0: it's a vermin. It's like a yeah. it's like a, worm, it's a right? wormy it's worm. A wormy worm. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, any mazel this
2: week, uh, Liel? Yes. Uh, my mazel tov is to a person I still have a, a hard time believing is not Jewish, Tina Fey. Yeah. What a movie. Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot. Right? What a person. What a, what a life force. Love ya. She's kind of Jewish. You're welcome any, any day. She's like Robin Williams.
1: He was kind of Jewish. Stephanie? My mazel tov is to my aunt and uncle and cousin um, who in Florida found the best bagel I have ever eaten. It was called like Brooklyn Water Bagel. And it All was right. amazing. It was still warm, still warm from Brooklyn.
0: Big ups to Brooklyn Water Bagel. And my muzzle tov is to my wife, the beautiful Sid Oppenheimer, who retired from her last job after eight and a half years this week and is a full time mom for the foreseeable future. She's she's entertaining offers in the nonprofit space. Maybe we'll move into publishing that space to use a word I hate. Um and but she's she put in a long time and it took, she she was reluctant to leave, but she wanted a little more time at home with the baby. Muzzle tov to you, Sid Oppenheimer. A little reader mail. We read all our mail and we love you guys for sending it. And we're sorry when we don't have a chance to write back. We really do read it. And then we circulate amongst each other and we talk about you and we comment on it. This week, we got a great letter about our comments on Hitler's alleged micropenis. A reader writes, hey, unorthodox, I have to say I'm a little disappointed to get such an uninsightful take on the issue of, quote, Hitler's deformed micropenis, unquote, from three such obviously brilliant people. Thank you. I get that it's funny and that there's a lot of capital in giving Jews an excuse to belittle Hitler. However, We should know that even in the case of Hitler, the Hitler of world leaders, ascribing personality deficiencies to genital expression perpetuates ideas of, quote, real manhood. The thought process here is that sex ties directly to gender, which ties directly to the worth of the person. This implies a sort of sovereign masculinity, which contributes directly to sexism and gender discrimination in the form of belittling people based on their sex. I have found it really disappointing how much of the internet is still so willing to jump on the little penis equals dictator bandwagon. If a micropenis really leads to emotional problems, is it not more likely they'd be caused by this collective demolishing of others with the condition? Would not the fault for Hitler's anger, at least, lie in those participating in a society that connects genital expression to real manhood? Yes, sex is funny, but as a fairly progressive, if not liberal, podcast, I think y'all would rather discuss the implications of an internet rallying around genital shaming than make such an obvious joke. Love the show. Been with you since the beginning. It really means a lot. Thanks, Ben Goldstein. I, I
2: would much rather discuss a micro penis. No,
1: I think I think no, we, I think we he's did right. try and get at that. I don't maybe think we not did. well.
2: I don't think we got at it well. I think he's right. Mark, progressive values are one thing, but like if your dick is one and a half inches short and it's like, that shaped, doesn't like mean a U-turn sign, like you're going to be fucked up for so many reasons have nothing to do with society. Now we're going to get so much mail from people. Okay, so much
0: let us then. Anonymously signed mail from people with one and a half inch penises. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and we may well read it on the air. See, like we just did. Unorthodox is hosted by Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnik... And Mark Oppenheimer, that's me. It's edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivory and Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic Supervision this week is by Ariana Killerin, way up in Maine, and Kosher Slaughtering is by Donald Drum. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, just email us and ask for it. Shalom, friends.